0: your host, Maureen Metcalf and I'm delighted to be recording live from the International Leadership Association Conference in Atlanta. Today we're joined by Ron Heifetz. So Ron, would you introduce yourself?
1: My name is uh, Ron Heifetz. I've been teaching at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard for about 34 years. I started my career in medicine, training in surgery, and after my first year of training, I took a year off. I was preparing to be a brain surgeon like my father was. And uh, during that year off, I did two things. First of all, I went back to study some music because I grew up playing music, playing the cello. To support my music habit, I had to make a living. And I was already licensed to practice medicine as a general practitioner. And to get part-time jobs, we call them moonlighting mm-hmm. jobs. And the first moonlighting job I was able to get was at Rikers Island Prison in New York City. So once a week from four in the afternoon until eight in the morning, I was the doctor for the prison. And uh, Part of my job was to take care of medical emergencies, but those were rare because most people coming into prison from the local jails were healthy. They were young. But what kept me up all night long was uh, doing routine physical examinations of all of the uh, inmates as they would be uh, as they would come into the prison uh, from the local jails. They frequently come in during the night by buses and they were entitled to a medical exam. So it was just part of their entry into the prison. Immediately, anybody could see that Nearly everybody coming into the prison was poor, and nearly everybody had experienced a lot of injustice in their life. Most of the people were uh, minorities and had experienced a lot of bad things, and in their own perverse way, were kind of hitting back or doing justice in a system where they thought there wasn't any justice. And uh, that got me really interested in social problems and social illness and public policy and social policy. Because in medicine, you know, you work training you train and you work hard to help individual people get better in, in, in their individual health. But it was clear from that prison experience that individual people are part of large sociological patterns, economic patterns, patterns of racial prejudice, patterns of family dysfunction sometimes uh, that are a product of the poverty and a product of the prejudice. And so I began to, to shift my career from being a doctor at the individual level to working at the systemic level. But for me, problems, a problem centered approach was part of my training because in medicine, you always begin with the question, what's the problem? And uh, you assume that if the person were healthy, they're not coming to see you, but there's a problem and Mm -hmm. there's a presenting problem, which is usually a symptom. And then you have to do sometimes a lot of hard thinking and a lot of hard investigating to Mm -hmm. figure out what's the underlying problem. which we then call a diagnosis. When I finished the prison job, I then had a job, another moonlighting job, examining CEOs and senior vice presidents of big New York companies.
0: Still in the medical space, not in the
1: leadership space. Right. This was all part of my transition. And uh, the job in this executive health clinic that gave these people were entitled to a medical exam. Not Not unlike the prisoners. Because (laughs) of their fringe medical bag. And so, uh, so I'd spend sometimes an hour, hour and a half talking with each one of these people, mainly guys. Back then, it was Mm -hmm. 1978, 1980 for those years. And I really learned a lot from talking with them about how more than half of them were stressed out Mm -hmm. and not managing the stresses of their jobs very, very well. The the stresses came out in all sorts of ways, you know, smoking, eating poorly, drinking Mm -hmm. too much. Sometimes they came out in really subtle kinds of ways. Like I remember one guy came in and he had this 100-point checklist, and he checked off on his checklist that he was having difficulty hearing, Okay, which is unusual for a 50-year-old man. And I asked him, okay, well, how do you know that you're having trouble hearing? Are you having trouble hearing in meetings? Are you having trouble hearing in the movie theater? Where are you having trouble hearing? He said, no, work is fine, you know, and movies are fine, but when I go home, my wife is telling me I'm having trouble hearing. (laughs) So I said, okay, well, what's going on? So I said, well, you know, I get up at six, you know, I leave the house at six in the morning. I get home after eight o'clock at night. I commute in and out of New York City and my wife's got all these things she wants to talk about and I just don't have anything left. So this is not really
0: an audible
1: problem. Right. Exactly. And so after about a year of, of spending time with these executives, I began to think about the challenges of leadership from people in high positions of authority. And what is it about being placed in a high position of authority uh-huh. can be challenging and difficult, isolate and lead to uh, behaviors that are not healthy. And and putting those two together, the interest in leadership and the interest in public policy meant me to design for myself a training program in leadership. At the time, 1978, 1980, there were no such places to get an education and thinking about the practice of leadership. So I I had to design my own. And uh, the first step in that was to finish my medical training in psychiatry. I thought that would give me tools.
0: So at that point, then you have the balance between understanding the neurobiology and the psychology. Yes. Which is a powerful combination.
1: It is, but not quite as applicable as people would like to believe these days. I don't think the neurosciences have that much yet to give us. They may in the future, but I think people are very, very excited when they find a neuroscientific explanation for the behaviors that we already see and know quite a lot about Mm -hmm. just from observation. But the psychiatry did help me in in thinking about the dilemmas of of leadership, particularly thinking about family systems and group systems. I then did a degree at Kennedy School and then joined the faculty 34 years ago to experiment with developing a curriculum in leadership. At the time, there weren't any other places in the country teaching leadership except the military academy at West Point. Mm, okay. This was 1983. Business schools didn't begin to think about leadership until the 1990s. So for a very long time, I felt uh, in a very open terrain getting to create.
0: Mm.
1: Um, most of my students who come to the Kennedy School are in our mid-career and executive programs. Okay, They come from 97 different countries on any given year. I think it was 97 countries last year. So I'll have a class of people from 40 different countries on average.
0: How big is it class for you?
1: 112 people. Okay. And they're mainly at mid-career. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of experience. They have a lot of success stories and they have a lot of failures. And I've organized my teaching around their own cases. Okay. I find it's a lot more powerful to teach people in a way that will be of sustaining value to them. Mm -hmm. if they can learn from their own experience rather than mainly learning through other people's cases. Mm -hmm. So I design my courses where people work in small groups where they each consult to one another's cases each week. And then we analyze their cases in front of the large class and uh, they write up analyses of their cases. um, Because leadership, as I've come to understand it, is a practice. It's not the same as having a position of authority.
0: Right. So can you explain more about what you mean by practice? I think we all use that word differently. It's
1: something one does. It's an activity. Uh It's like practicing medicine. It's a set Uh of things that you do to work a certain set of problems in the world. In medicine, there are medical problems. In engineering, there are engineering problems. Uh The field of leadership or the area of leadership has been confused Uh because it confuses leadership with authority. Yeah. And therefore, it confuses leadership with gaining a high position. We know intuitively that leadership's not the same as authority because we complain frequently about the lack of leadership that we get from people <laughs> in the board. We say the leaders aren't leading.
0: Tim. I, as a coach, I get comments like, help them be more leaderly.
1: Right. And what people re- usually mean by that is help them be a little bit more comfortable in their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to exercise or practice leadership. So much of my work has been organized around Clarifying how we should define these terms and think about leadership as something you do rather than something that you are. A lot of people practice leadership just at moments in their life. Okay. Maybe the maybe the person who raises the hard question in a meeting Mm -hmm. and keeps people from making a terrible mistake, or points out a new creative opportunity. It may be that they don't do anything after that.
0: So you're pointing really to this idea that I don't need to have an official title of leadership to extend the practice of leadership at any level within the organization. Right. And the idea is that
1: anybody could practice leadership Mm -hmm. with or without authority. And when we begin to look around the world, we see lots of people practicing leadership without ever waiting to be called into play, without being elected or appointed Mm -hmm. or promoted. They practice leadership just because they see a problem in their midst and they begin to organize people around them to work that problem. So activists. Exactly. Are a good example of people who lead with that often without much authority at all. Uh Sometimes they'll build up an organization, but even then their target audience is generally not those inside the organization. Their target audience are people over whom they have no authority at all. You know, people who actually may not even like the point of view, Uh but where you're trying to engage them in rethinking some of their priorities. People in the United States in any social movement, the civil rights movement is one very uh-huh. good uh-huh. example of trying to mobilize people to rethink uh-huh. the contradiction in their own value set.
0: And I wouldn't stop on the idea of the contradiction in your own value set. Can you say more about that? Because I think that's a powerful term and a powerful motivator for us to move forward.
1: It uh-huh. is, but it's hard for people to hold the contradiction in their own values. Uh-huh. And generally we rectify those contradictions by putting out of our sight the contradiction Mm -hmm. itself. Nobody wants to be called a hypocrite, and nobody wants to feel that they're not living up Mm -hmm. to their values.
0: So I would put that out of my sight by either removing myself from a situation or removing someone that epitomizes my contradictions?
1: Yes. And people who practice leadership get neutralized frequently. So one of the books I've written and courses that I teach is on uh, neutralization, how people okay. get brought down, how to stay alive in the practice of leadership uh-huh. when you're raising questions that are hard for people to wrestle. If you say to people as happened in the civil rights movement or is happening Right now in the United States during this election season, I think what we've seen is that many people are trying to hold on to the values of a culture that has had enormous meaning and significance. A culture in which the roles in which men and women play fairly um, clear roles orients a household and a culture where it's mainly predominantly one ethnicity
0: that mm-hmm. is yeah.
1: European descent. hmm uh, and mainly one religious persuasion, uh-huh. uh, Christian, a Christian of various denominations.
0: And this is the U.S. specifically yes. you're talking about.
1: Okay. And in any, in any community, you get a dominant uh, ethnicity and a dominant culture. And when that culture is challenged by immigrants of various kinds, there are real losses that the dominant culture then experienced. And very difficult integrative work in adapting that culture so that it can now have successful and more harmonious relationships as a multicultural society. And that's a big challenge, not only in the United States, but in many places Mm -hmm. around the world. Mm -hmm. The leadership required then to say to people, you know, you say you stand for freedom and equality and respect for all you individuals. You say you even believe that we're all children of God. And yet. And yet, look at the public policy that you're Mm -hmm. supporting. Look at the people you're voting for. You know, there's a contradiction here. How are we going to rectify that contradiction? Mm -hmm. And that question, you know, you say that you respect every individual, man or woman. Why doesn't a woman get to have the option at least that if she wants to work inside the home, that's great. And devote herself Mm -hmm. to uh, making a family. And if she wants to work outside the home and run for office, go into combat, go into business, she also has that option. Why can't we make space for those freedoms?
0: And yet the yeah. conversation, I, my dad's in the military, so we have this, and I'm a bit of a female activist. So we have this conversation at home fairly often. Yeah. What are the, what are the gives and gets? Because in, in either case, there's
1: a give and a get. Right. And because the adjustments and the adaptations mm-hmm. required of women are significant just as the adaptations and requirements of change are significant to men. And Mm then there needs to be giving and getting in both domains, you know. Mm -hmm. And as we move into these transitions and evolve these cultures, we have to conserve and hold still, hold steady on the cultural DNA that's precious and essential and not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And yet. And yet you can't hold on to all of it. You know, the reason why I I like so much this term uh, adaptation is because in nature, what happens when an organism achieves a successful adaptation in order to thrive in a changing environment, what happens is it develops new capacity. But it doesn't throw out all of its old capacity. Most of its new capacity builds from its old capacity. An organism can generate radically new functionality. Human beings can do amazing things compared to a chimpanzee. But 99% of our DNA is the same. God didn't do zero-based budgeting. You know? That's a great quote. We build from our culture. Right. And we need to honor our culture and and then sift through what's precious and essential to conserve, Uh what needs to be lost, and then what innovation will enable us to take the Mm -hmm. best of our history, values, virtues, you know, and traditions Mm -hmm. into the future.
0: And yet anything that gets removed, with it, people become disenfranchised, some element of. Well, either
1: some element or some habits mm-hmm. or some power relationships might shift. There are the mm-hmm. losses, even if most of the culture remains intact, the losses are still really very significant. So if you're going to mobilize people to achieve an evolution in their culture uh-huh. where their culture has new capacity to live up to those values, perhaps freedom of opportunity more Mm -hmm. fully, there are going to be losses on the way. And from a diagnostic point of view, the practice and the practice of leadership, you've got to be able to analyze and sense and identify what those losses are. So back to
0: your medical practice
1: of diagnosing, now applied to leadership. Exactly. And uh, the inclination, I think, of many people with great ideas and virtuous beliefs and cherished causes is they tend to discount and devalue the values and the virtues that are opposing them. They tend to to two-dimensionalize them instead of moving towards their opposition and towards their enemy and trying to understand what's really at stake. Because the people who have the most to lose are the people who fight the hardest. The allies come cheap. Mm -hmm. Allies are easy because they basically are going to enjoy the benefits that you're promoting. Mm -hmm. But the people who have a lot to lose, they're going to fight. You know, a lot of people know the phrase, people resist change, but it's not really true. Nobody gives back a winning lottery ticket. People aren't really, people aren't stupid.
0: <laughs> right. So people I resist love... the stuff that doesn't favor me and I exactly. embrace the stuff
1: that. That does. People, people love change when they know it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's only the risk of loss or the mm-hmm. reality of a loss that people resist. And some changes involve a real loss. A and loss of power, of status, of importance. You, you, change the, you stop gerrymandering the congressional districts in North Carolina, and you're going to change the power dynamics. And that will generate real losses in how resources are allocated in our country.
0: And to the factions that are involved, that's a, yeah, that's a real, tangible, exactly. experienced loss. And I think one needs to be able to
1: speak then in leadership with compassion mm-hmm. in naming the losses that you're asking people to sustain. If you're liberalizing an economy that's been controlled or you're educating girls who've never been educated in a, in a community, yeah. it's going to change the dynamics in that family. That girl is going to start saying things to her father or her mother or her grandparents or her uncles that she hasn't said before. The changes and the losses to both men and uneducated women when you start to educate a girl need to be understood and appreciated because we need to know how are you going to hold people through those changes so that they can see that you're not upending everything they believe in. You're going to honor and value a lot of their tradition culture. There's just some of it that's going to have to change.
0: People are willing
1: to suffer losses if they see the reason why.
0: Okay, so if if there's, again, if there's a win, if my daughter gets a better life than I had.
1: Yes. I'll, I'll endure a lot. Yes. You know, you grew up in the military, mm-hmm. uh, as did my wife, and people are willing to send their children off to war, but they have to see the reason why. Yeah. They so have to see the meaning. Yeah. Right. For all
0: a sort of values that they exactly, give their lives for. Exactly.
1: So... People can be mobilized to endure losses and to go through changes, mm-hmm. but they need to see the re- reason why. Now, where do you find the reason why? The reason why is in their tradition, is in their culture, is in their cultural DNA that you're going to hold on to. That's what generates the reason why. So if you're some wonderfully creative, enthusiastic social change agent and you only talk about change, you're going to scare the hell out of people and you're not going to give people a reason to go through the change except those people who who win. But all those people are going to have to endure the losses. You have to place the losses in the context of what you're going to conserve into the future and enable them to hold on to in a changing world in which they're going to need to change in order to hold on to what they love.
0: I'm going to say that back because it's really important. So, as a leader, I need to help people see the win and what value they get by giving up something that they also hold precious. Yes. So it's the paradox of by by giving something up, my life gets better. Or yes, but it it's not quite. It's better. not
1: it, quite as transactional though, you know, as okay. one might think. You know, in thinking of it in a sort of in a business context mm-hmm. or give and get sense and an economic mm-hmm. sense, it's that. I continue to know who I am as a good father in this family mm-hmm. with a daughter who's now got more education than I've got. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, have even, I can even have more pride mm-hmm. as a father in this family that I permitted that to happen. Um, and here's how it's now constant in my values, my tradition, even though it's a different tweak, a different interpretation mm-hmm. of how those values were given to me by my ancestors, mm-hmm. I can understand how this is actually the best way for me to carry on the best of my tradition.
0: And I, as you say that, I imagine while my dad wanted the absolute best for me, at some point, just as I will with, with others around me, it's hard to watch someone totally surpass me and it's the proudest moment of my life. Exactly. At the same time. Exactly. And I think that's very
1: natural and very normal, mm-hmm. you know, and and so you'd want the daughter, mm-hmm. if you were teaching her about mm-hmm. leadership, if she were the agent of leadership, you'd want her to have compassion for her parents. And for her to know that, you know, they love it, but it's also tough. Mm-hmm. And to be able to repair the sometimes what temporarily is a breach in that relationship mm-hmm. where there's strain,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: that gets repaired. Over time, if one maintains faith that over time those loyalties can be renegotiated and refashioned and renewed,
0: I like the idea of re- renegotiating because, it, yeah, I I agree that the give and get is a very simplistic when it goes to the core of who I am and how I see the world yes. and how I see yeah how I how I see myself yes as a contributor to the world
1: yes. Because the sources of meaning that anchor, uh-huh. that, that make it worth going through a, a period of cultural transition where the losses aren't even that clearly definable. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's not like the loss is 5% of my assets.
0: Uh-huh.
1: The sources of meaning are in values. And and an identity. Yes. Anchored, Who am I? An identity anchored in relationships uh-huh. that say, I am of these people.
0: Uh-huh. I
1: am of this ethnicity. I am uh-huh. of this culture's history. Uh-huh. I am of this tradition. And if you can honor a culture at the same time that you're challenging that culture, and then come up with ways to innovate to allow that culture to change but still be itself.
0: I, again, I think that's a critical point, that making a change doesn't devalue everything that got us here. Right. So when we talk about participative leadership, it doesn't mean that command and control wasn't a major contributor to getting our country and most countries on the planet to their current state. Now we're talking about an adaptation, not not diminishing all of the people who got us here.
1: Well, I, I think that's not only true, but I also think that authoritative command will continue to be useful because if the problem is primarily technical and known Mm -hmm. for which we've already developed the the systems, Mm -hmm. the organizational systems and cultural norms and processes, the schools to prepare people for that kind of authoritative Mm -hmm. expertise, there will always be, it will always be more efficient to entrust Mm -hmm. people with authority to run the show and to keep things moving Mm -hmm. in a coordinated fashion. But as we experience in our changing world a changing ratio in which complex problems are partly technical uh-huh. but also partly adaptive where new capacity is required so then you, our
0: listeners who don't know what adaptive is problems d- that
1: require people to learn their ways uh-huh. they're frequently problems in which the people the problem is embedded in people okay then you I can't mean- put people to sleep and fix their bodies You got to get them to change their smoking or their eating. Mm -hmm. They have to achieve the solution because they Mm -hmm. are the problem.
0: And the reason I ask that is because Mm -hmm. this is some of your work that I think is so foundational to what we're doing with leaders is the idea that I can't fix something out there. I've actually got to change. The problem works me as much as I work the problem.
1: Right. And I think that's a critically important mindset for the person practicing leadership. It's also... Very important to understand that that's what you're asking people to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're asking people to build new capacity. That if I'm a doctor, a a cardiac surgeon, and I've sweated bullets all night long to Mm -hmm. to redo the arteries to the heart, it's not enough after surgery to tell a person stop smoking, stop Mm -hmm. drinking that Mm -hmm. much, eat different foods, change your diet, and get exercise. Most people don't do it. Yeah. Even after almost die of a heart disease, um, it's harder to change the heart than it is just to fix it mm-hmm. and And we then have to understand what does it mean when you're asking people to change parts of their life. The learning required in having that person develop new capacity is adaptive work for them it's It's analogous to an organism having to develop new capacity to thrive in a changing situation, a changing mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Well, that heart patient has to develop new capacity for them. The new capacity sounds straightforward, but it actually isn't because to change a diet means every time you feel a little lonely, every time you sort of feel a little stressed and you want some remembrance of what it was like when you'd go home and there was mm-hmm. mother and her cooking.
0: Baskin-Robbins ice
1: cream. You can't go back to that. So you have to come up with a new means of Mm -hmm. managing those moments where you feel Mm -hmm. stressed or lonely or want to go home but can't go home to that anymore. Yeah. You know, because it's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Well, you can't tell a person just here's what you should do. They have to do it. They have to own the problem. Mm -hmm. They have to make the changes because the problem lies in their own heart and mind. So in adaptive problems, you're building the capacity of people to solve their problems. And that requires a more participative mode of operating than a more authoritative mode of operating because the people with the problem are the problem. So mm-hmm. they've, be, they've got to be mobilized and engaged in the problem solving.
0: So, how does that translate now to the bigger issues we face in our ecosystem?
1: With the challenge of uh, climate change, there is no technical fix. It may be that we develop hydrogen fuel cells that in 20 or 30 years give us an endless supply of energy. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we will have solved a very big part of the climate change problem. Mm -hmm. But until then, the only way to really solve the climate change problem is for people to change what they do, because the problem now is distributed amongst Mm -hmm. masses of people and no instrument from on high can just change it. Laws and public policy can help in pushing people to change their habits, making it easier to buy an electric car because you put, President Obama just announced, they're going to put every 50 miles on certain highways all across the country, a recharging station. Mm -hmm. So now you could take an electric car and long distance drive. A very significant part of the climate change problem is that we eat meat. Industrial agriculture is a major source of climate change. Probably at least 20% of the problem with climate change is due to the amount of energy it takes to feed uh, animals and then mm-hmm. to feed the animals instead of the vegetables itself. It takes 2,000 gallons, more than 2,000 gallons of water to grow one pound of hamburger meat.
0: 2,000 gallons of water.
1: For one pound of hamburger meat.
0: So that's all the watering of the fields and the watering of the cows. And exactly. The...
1: All the water that it takes to grow the plants, to feed the animals. Wow. So it takes an unbelievable amount of resources that has a profound effect on climate change. How do you get people to change their diet, to stop eating meat or to eat less meat? Mm -hmm. You can't solve that problem just by instrumenting out high. You couldn't just pass a law Mm -hmm. saying it's now illegal to eat meat. You'd get a revolution. You'd get voted out of office. Mm -hmm. So we need leadership that will mobilize people to sustain the short term pain of not being able to eat some of their favorite foods mm-hmm. that with which they identify home and family and you know comfort comfort of all sorts of kinds and that just taste good it and to give that up and mm-hmm. develop new tastes or tastes for new things mm-hmm. um, that will help save our environment and keep Many cities on coasts all around the world, from Shanghai to Miami, from going underwater.
0: For many people, they would rather somebody else go underwater and not give up their hamburger.
1: Yes. So we need to strengthen our sense of collective responsibility for these collective challenges. And there are things governments can do to help. They can Mm -hmm. start uh, taxing carbon differently. They could tax meat differently instead mm-hmm. of subsidizing industrial meat production, mm-hmm. uh, as we do in this country. Mm-hmm. We subsidize the farmers that grow the corn, that feed mm-hmm. the cattle. So the government could help mm-hmm. in, in generating more collective responsibility for our collective problems. But there are ways in which people could practice leadership in their families, in their schools, in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You see, if, if leadership's not the same as authority, then it's something we're all called to do in all the various domains of challenges that we have within our reach. Mm -hmm. And uh, challenges like consuming less electricity or consuming less meat are within each Mm -hmm. of our reach. And in that sense, Mm -hmm. then the opportunity for leadership is available to all of us.
0: And so one of the things I heard was the idea that I am weighing more public good Than I used to when I could just go grab a hamburger or jump in my big gas guzzling sports car and go drive fast because I felt good. Yes. And that's that's a conversation that I think isn't happening enough in our general population.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And I think part of the problem is that we've confused citizenship with consumer being consumer.
0: Well, at some point there was an economic need to create jobs. So we create consumerism, and I'm sure that's overly simplistic. But but But, what I mean is that as a consumer,
1: your job is to not buy the shoe that doesn't feel right and to go to a different store because that's how the market works. You know, the market businesses should cater to your tastes and try to make a shoe that doesn't pinch. But in public life, Mm -hmm. as a citizen, sometimes the shoe should pinch, you know. And looking for the candidate, the political Mm -hmm. candidate who will give you the most painless remedy. uh, Short term. Always short term becomes a real problem. Mm -hmm. Versus a free trade. You begin to think that being a citizen is that we can behave just as the same ways you do when we're a customer.
0: That's a distinction. A citizen
1: has responsibilities to share what it means to be a citizen of a city, of a village, Mm -hmm. of a state, Mm -hmm. of a country. Mm Um, is to own collective responsibility for it Mm -hmm. and to feel that you have a role, you know, in the lives of other people and an obligation to Mm -hmm. them and they have an Mm -hmm. obligation to you. And that's Mm -hmm. what it means to have solidarity in community. And I think human beings do desperately want to have that. I think that's deep in the human nature and in human culture. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the joy that comes from belonging, from having your favorite football team or, mm-hmm. you know, or in America, basketball team mm-hmm. or a baseball team win. And it's all in good sport with mm-hmm. your opposition. But mm-hmm. there's a sense of being part of a larger enterprise that mm-hmm. I think is deeply meaningful.
0: I'm delighted. Thank you so much. Awesome. So, again, thank you to Ron Heifetz for being our guest and for the wisdom he shared in the ILA book, Leadership 2050.